So welcome to another episode of Cooperatively Speaking. I am your host, Joe Castelluccio, and I'm very excited to be hosting my first episode of ENI's podcast. While my friends Saul and David have focused more on the facilities end of things in their episodes, my episodes will be geared towards general products and services. And what better way to kick that off than with today's topic, where we'll be talking about payments fraud and the hidden risk in your vendor master file. Now, I'll have three guests with me today. Naoma Emmons is the Deputy Chief Procurement Officer for the University of Kentucky. Rick Gay is the Director of Procurement Services for Spring Branch Independent School District. And Taylor Nemeth, who is Head of Payments at PaymentWorks. Welcome, folks. We have a lot of great information to share today, so let's get started. Taylor, we're going to kick it off with you today, my friend. Can you define social engineering fraud and what kind of vendor email frauds are out there? Absolutely. And and I know Rick and, and Naoma know this well, but I'll, I'll give uh, my perspective and, and what we've seen over the years. So it's a big problem, Joe, as you mentioned, and, and then FBI considers it now, I believe, either the largest or pretty close to the top, one of the largest sources of cybercrime in terms of dollars lost every year. Uh, but it's a little bit different than what I think most folks would think of when they think of um, a cyber attack, right? Somebody's hacking into your system and stealing a bunch of data. This is a little bit different. It, it seems pretty simple, but it actually gets really tricky and, and it's hard to prevent. But what happens is, in a nutshell, and it, this can kind of manifest in a bunch of different ways. In Naoma and Rick's world, you know, you're paying a lot of people, right? And you have to collect a lot of information to get that information back into the ERP, which is the system of record and where you pay out of. And so you're collecting all this information and a lot of folks collect it manually. So you're collecting paper or PDF forms and so forth. And it houses all the identity credentials that you need from your vendors for them to get paid, their tax information, their address information, their bank account information. And so what happens is somewhat simple uh, in the sense that a fraudster figures out, well, gosh, this is a very manual, ugly process. And so I'm going to insert myself in here. And so what this is, is uh, what we call a man in the middle attack. And again, it happens through social engineering and, and we can talk through that, but somebody inserts themselves into that process and sends Naoma or Rick an email or a change form or whatever the process is and says, Hey, I'm ABC company, uh, but I need to change my bank account information. And they submit that bank account information. It flows on down to the ERP system and the money gets misdirected to a fraudster instead of who you're intending to pay. And it's, it's challenging because, as I mentioned, in many folks' cases, this process is very manual. You're not familiar with this problem. You have humans involved. There's maybe no ownership of this entire process across the organization. And what it often ends up is, is you're in the newspaper for a financial loss, and it's, it, it's ugly. So, Rick and Naoma, what are you seeing in terms of your day-to-day -day operation? What are you seeing in this area? for the school district as well so as we the university. So we saw uh, last year about 500 new vendors wanting to be in our vendor file. I already have about 12,000 vendors and we received about 900 changes through email or phone call, you know, that type of thing. Uh, here at the University of Kentucky, we have about 87,000 vendors in our vendor file. Uh, we add about 600 new vendors a month. Uh, within that, you're taking a lot of risk adding that many vendors that they are correct, correct name as listed with the uh, federal government. 
and also we need to make sure that they're not debarred or are not uh, suspended in any way because we receive about 153 million a year in federal grants. So that is a huge uh, thing for us that PaymentWorks does confirm all of that for us. So Taylor, why doesn't the traditional cybersecurity defend the vendor master from these types of attacks? Well, it's probably best to dive into how these occur, and then I think the question will be answered. So, you know, the, the most common way that these occur, so Rick mentioned email. Rick doesn't anymore, but a lot of folks have in the past and, and still do. And email is just inherently unsecured. It was never designed to be a mechanism to send sensitive information because it's generally insecure. So what happens is these fraudsters, they hack into either your email system, you know, as in uh, Spring Branch or, or Kentucky or whoever the buyer or the payer is, but they also hack into the vendor's email address. And so what happens here, it, it's called business email compromise. So the vendor's email themselves is compromised. So no matter how good of an IT staff Rick has and Naoma has, the vendor's email has been hacked and they find the vendor that's going to receive a lot of money, right? Uh, generally, it's a construction vendor or um, some highly publicized vendor that's, you know, construction building a, a new school or, or doing renovation on a residence hall or whatever the case may be. And they sit and they watch that email communication between the accounts payable folks for their customer and, and the vendor. And they sit on it and they figure out when big invoices are coming up and so forth. And what they actually do is we'll send an email from the vendor's account to accounts payable with instructions to change that bank account. And to answer your question, Joe, the reason why, you know, your typical IT department or, or whatever method you have for securing against cyber attacks, you're getting an email from a fraudster, but it's coming from a legitimate email. So you have no idea. So the answer to your question is because humans have to be involved to kind of either put processes and controls in place or decipher something that seems fuzzy about that email. But in that scenario, there's virtually nothing an IT staff can do to prevent this sort of attack because it happened the right way, but the wrong person was initiating that, if that makes sense. Sure. Yeah, you bet. Naomi and Rick, how do you defend your university or your school district, as well as your staff, from falling for these types of frauds? We actually had an incident where we almost lost $1.8 million on a construction contract. Now, we were able to catch it at the last minute, and we clawed that money back. But it did cause us a lot of concern. And when we discovered PaymentWorks, we decided to utilize those services to protect ourselves and hopefully prevent that from happening again. Obviously, being a smaller school district, in the city of Houston, we're going to be front page news if we have a major fraud incident like that. Uh, Joe, really, you didn't have a lot of protection if you didn't have a system as payment works to catch it now with the fraudsters being so good. And uh, you also have to take in consideration, we had an incident where an employee left one of our large vendors and they knew how before payment works they could contact us to update information and change information. And so one of their employees did do that, contacted us, wanted us to correct this information in the system as they told us. Uh, but thank goodness we were on payment works at the time and it had to go through payment works and so nothing happened from it. But you have to have something to protect you now just because the fraudsters are so good. 
Yeah. I just wanted to touch base on something Rick said, because I think it's an important point with regard to, you know, ending up in the newspaper. It's not uncommon for folks who have had these kind of things to kind of come our way looking for some help or a solution. But what Rick said is right with regard to, you know, how this ends up. And one of the things we've realized is there's all the financial loss. And of course, that's, that's terrible for whatever institution. But a lot of the people involved are the ones who are really kind of victims in this situation because we've seen folks that are, it's their day job to be responsible for collecting vendor information, putting it into the ERP and making payments. And when a million and, you know, $1.8 million goes out the door, it's really demotivating for them in a really uh, ugly situation. We had a, a customer who this woman was kind of headed towards retirement uh, before a, an incident occurred. And it was like, it was a huge stain on the end of her career. She kind of like, she went out in a, a very bad state. And um, I think that's often the part. And Rick, I don't know if you know this resonates with Spring Branch, but the people who are involved, you kind of have the weight of all this risk on their shoulders and it really takes a toll on them. And, it, and Absolutely. It, uh, I have yeah. one clerk that looks at all those emails and those changes. And no matter what kind of system you put in place to review it and look at it, there's still the potential for a lot of fraud to possibly occur. And so when we brought payment works on board, uh, I know after working with it for a a couple of months, uh, I was sleeping a lot better uh, (laughs) knowing that we had a stopgap in there that was looking at all of those touch points in the system and giving us feedback as to whether we should allow this to be changed or not. Yep. What role does insurance play in covering these types of losses? One of the things that uh, attracted me was the indemnification that PaymentWorks stood up and said, hey, if anything happens on our watch, we'll take responsibility for it as long as you follow all of our, our procedures and policies. So that gives us a little bit of comfort in knowing that the district's not really out any funds if anything happens. Yeah, I, from, from our perspective, Joe, the, the number one question we used to get asked years ago was, how do I de-risk myself, right? And yes, there's some things you can do to mitigate your risk and, and we have recommendations and you can and should do those things. But at the end of the day, you want to offload your risk. That's why folks get you know insurance policies for cyber uh, attacks or Arizona missions or whatever. With this type of attack, which is largely, you know, social engineering and there's humans involved, it's very difficult. Only recently do some of the larger insurers offer what they call social engineering coverage. The amounts are very low uh, generally. And so what folks were coming, you know, to us to ask was, how do I get someone else to absorb the risk? And that, that's sort of, um, you know, ultimately the best solution to de-risk yourself is to make it someone else's problem, I guess, but also to put these processes in place. And, and to Rick's point, you're, no one's ever going to take the risk unless you have a controlled process in place. And so that's that's part of what we help provide. So, Naoma, you've got 20 plus years in higher education and some in private sector prior to that. Rick, you've got 20 plus years in the K-12 sector. And then, Taylor, you're an industry expert. If you had to pick one thing that vendor management professionals should do to mitigate the risk, what would you recommend? Because I'm thinking, Naoma, you're bringing on 
600 new vendors a month. You've got 87,000 vendors. That's a massive undertaking. So any suggestions? I think the thing that we had to do and we did was hire a company as uh, Payment Works to really handle this for us. It's almost like we've outsourced our vendor uh, onboarding because there's no way one, two people or however it is can monitor this on themselves. And uh, we have never had a breach. And I think we went with Payment Works very early on, one of their first vendors. And I think that really helped us when the market saw this starting to happen. Yeah, we had an issue where they have processes in place that look at the whole vendor profile. So for example, I can't do business with anybody who is owned by China, Korea, uh, Russia, and Iran for IT products. And their sanctions list caught one of our vendors who is owned in Shanghai, China. Hmm. So the new law that came into effect, I now have a system that will tell me if I might possibly be in violation because they do check those kinds of things. And from our perspective, Joe, outside of putting a system in place, we always recommend some basic things that folks can do today to try to mitigate some of the risk. And well, one of the obvious places to start is just re-examine your controls and figure out who has governance over the process. We often find that when we have a prospect come into us and they say, hey, we just got hit by fraud, we ask, you know, who's, who's responsible for it at the organization? And it's almost always spread out. Well, it's, you know, accounts payable does this and procurement does this, but it's actually the department. And, you know, it, it's kind of not finger pointing, but there's not really a clear ownership over the process. And so that's usually a good place to start. But more tactfully is when you get any sort of vendor changes, and Naoma said this a couple of times and Rick did too, is often these frauds occur at your existing vendors, right? A lot of your new vendors, you know, especially in higher ed, Naoma, like with honorarium, you know, individuals and so forth, there's very low risk there, but it's almost always an existing vendor, existing construction vendor or software vendor where you've been paying them for 10 years and you get a bank change. That's almost always where these kind of things occur. And so we always recommend put a process in place for getting payment works, make a phone call. There are some solutions out there where you can ping a bank account off of and, and see if there you can get some ownership data. They're incomplete. You're not going to get 100%. So you need to make some phone calls. And there's some even some controls within that phone call process that you need to do to make sure you're not just calling a fraudster, right? You need to verify these phone numbers, but make some phone calls. That's That's often how we've caught frauds is by calling the vendor and they say, I didn't make a bank change. And then you kind of start the investigation process. So it's going through and figuring out who has governance over the process and then put some process in place to verify bank accounts, including calling those vendors to make sure that they actually did submit that change. Yeah. But the problem is that you usually have lower level clerical people that are doing that. And right. it's not the director or assistant director. It's a purchasing clerk. And you're asking them to take on tremendous responsibility. On the same time, you're getting pressure from the AP and the finance people. Hey, get this check out. We got to pay this vendor. And so it gets where you almost get in too much of a hurry in order to satisfy the customer. And then when a mistake gets made, everybody backs off and says, not me. You know, yep. 
And so, as I always tell my people, when the music stops, you want to make sure you got a chair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and Rick, believe me, I'm in agreement with regard to de-risking yourself. You know, the, yes, there's some things you can do, but what you're describing is at the end of the day, you still have all the risk and these poor clerks have the weight of all these frauds on your shoulders. And, and that you also touched upon an important point and something we see often is that urgency is almost always something we see in this sort of situation. It's like, this payment needs to get out. Please make a bank change you know, on Friday morning so this payment, this ACH payment can get out on a Friday. And one of the other types of fraud we see, Joe, just to digress for a second, is it's also business email compromise, but it's actually an internal email compromise. So somebody at you know Rick's org or Naomi's org, their email has been compromised. So you know, Naoma gets an email from the president of University of Kentucky that says, hey, you know, this $2 million payment to our, you know, construction vendor, uh, I need you to change this bank information. And they get an email from what they think is the president of the, the university. So they're like, well, heck, I got to go and change this. <laughs> and, yeah. and there's some urgency around it. And they change it and the money goes out the door. So that's, that's also something we see. Have you made any changes in terms of the types of payments fraud? Have you seen a decrease in the ACH spend? For your vendors, Rick and Naomi? Absolutely not. Uh, we're actually increasing the ACAH uh, because we can assure the vendors that we're taking steps to protect them, protect their banking information, protect their company information, no matter who they are. Uh, I agree. Before we went up with PaymentWorks, we had 12 vendors on ACH. And now we're probably at 500. Holy cow. And how long have you been on the platform, Naoma? Is it a couple of years now? Uh, I would say we're at five years. Wow. Okay. That's right. Yeah. We, we've been a little over a year now, but over 60% of my payments are ACH. Taylor, excuse my ignorance, because this could be a dumb question. Why wouldn't an organization use a tool like yours? What's, what's the hesitancy that you guys hear? Well, it costs money. Okay, yeah, <laughs> I suppose that's a, that's the easy answer. You know, some folks have processes in place and feel they're, you know, they have the proper controls in place. To Rick's point, you know, you still carry all that risk. That's usually a concern. Some folks, you know, do get some small level of insurance coverage. There are some insurance partners out there who will offer, you know, we, we partner with Chubb, who's one of the largest crime insurers in the, in the world. And, you know, they offer a social engineering policy. So folks can take advantage of that, but you're only covered up to maybe 150,000 or, you know, it's a smaller amount, maybe 250, I can't remember. But that's kind of small compared, you know, you heard Rick say 1.8, right? These are almost always big, big amounts. And so what we did with Chubb is we partnered with them and because with us, you're able to control the process. And, and more importantly, and this is important to insurers, no surprise, is they want an audit trail, right? And so if you have an audit trail in place and you have a system in place, Chubb is willing to say, well, if you put this in place, you get the indemnification that, that Rick described and, and your, your coverage and you're de-risking yourself much, much more. But I think, Joe, I mean, I think it's no different than any other type of insurance in the sense that, you know, it's just a risk versus cost thing. And if they don't feel that the risk is great enough, you know, they're not going to spend the money. But, you know, you, you highlighted the stat at the beginning of the call. It's somewhere around 80% of folks have had an attempt. I, I've struggled to find anyone at this point who has not even had an attempt. It's, it's pretty prevalent. But the, the insurance is very expensive, too. Right. You're, you're going to pay in the neighborhood of about $7,500,000 a year 
and you're only going to get a, a maybe two hundred thousand dollar, two hundred fifty thousand dollars in actual coverage. So it, it's it's very expensive, and it's not many people want to do it. What we've found using the product, we've stopped three fraud attempts, and as far as I'm concerned, that's paid for having payment works involved in our process. Naoma, you know, one thing I forgot to mention, because, you know, Kentucky's a huge school, right? And to answer your question a little bit differently, Joe, this process touches a lot of hands. And Naoma, like you have all the departments, you have procurement, you know, AP, like, do you mind talking about how, you know, when you're implementing something, this process does change the day to day for, you know, a decent portion of people, right? Correct. Uh, here are a budget that comes through purchasing years about 1.2 billion. And so that's a lot of payables going out. We have over 500 different departments on campus that are wanting to issue payment to someone. For you to be able to control that from purchasing to payables, the Treasury Division, it's got to center through one person. And so, believe it or not, we do have one person that really oversees now our whole payment works <laughs> that takes care of that. And, you know, if anybody calls us and wants a change of anything from a phone number to an address, anything on a vendor file, a bank number, it has to go to payment works. We do not do anything unless it comes through payment works. And that is really how we consolidate to this one person can handle all of this. Where before we went up with payment works, our AP department was making changes, our treasury department was making changes, a need situation. So for that, Naomi and Rick, do you have one person that's responsible for the risk, this type of risk, at the university or school district? Or is payment works the throat to choke? No, we, we have one person who oversees all the processing and then there's a workflow that we have that the vendor information goes through for approvals before they're put into the vendor file. Uh, we're going to choke payment works throat. <laughs> <laughs> She's looking okay. mighty. Yes, I get it. <laughs> So can you help me understand, Taylor, some of the verifications and things that you do in terms of the payment works does? What are some of the verifications that you're doing to prevent some of this fraud? Well, first and foremost, we automate the process. You know, I recommended, you know, making phone calls before and but it get, that gets expensive too. And, you know, you have people making those phone calls all day long. If you hear the volume that Rick and Naoma have, it's they, they get a lot of vendors. And so we automate that process. But to answer your question, we use a, a combination of third-party sources, so things that you know folks in the industry have access to, to try to automate some of our validations as best as possible. We also were set up kind of like a network. So if Rick onboards a vendor on day one and Naoma onboards that same vendor on day three, well, well guess what? Naoma just leveraged Rick's vendor because he, that vendor came first and we already verified them, right? So that verification for Naoma is um, much speedier and, and, and less expensive to do. And so if you think of it that way, and you know we're, we're very big in uh, school districts and state and local government and higher ed, and so they share a lot of the same vendors. So that kind of that process helps as well. But we reach out to these third-party sources, but as I mentioned earlier, they're great, but they're incomplete. There's no magic place where you can go and ping a bank account off of and 100% of the time you're going to get back, yep, thumbs up, you're good to pay, right? It just doesn't exist. We also have a fraud operations team that actually reviews a lot of these, what we call registrations and the bank details. 
and we look at things like IP address information and domain and you know whether we have multi-factor and whether they updated their password recently and a whole bunch of factors. And our system does this in an automated way. And our fraud operations team actually makes the phone calls on behalf of, of Rick and Naoma and tries to verify or sniff out fraud as best as possible. And then on the outgoing side, you know, we receive the payment file and they're you know, Rick alluded to indemnified or covered for a loss because we have, we're so confident in our process. Do you all know, because we have kind of a wide range of types of organizations that are members of ENI from the largest institutions in the country to some small school districts and private colleges. Do you know what the ROI is for transferring much of that from the checks to an ACH? Do you know how you get a return on that investment or how you measure the return on investment? Or Taylor, do you guys have an idea of what that would look like? I've heard anywhere from $3 to $12 to mail a check. When you factor all the people that are involved in the printing process and return checks, I don't know how often you guys get return checks, but that's a thing. So I, we use the $6.50 to quantify that. And so we'll, you know, it's, you just simple math with regard to the number of checks that you were doing versus um, not doing anymore. And that, that's kind of what we've seen for folks to help understand how much they can save. When I've talked to some of our institutions, one of the concerns, I guess, that they've had is the implementation. So can you talk a little bit about the implementation process and how that went? I can speak here at the University of Kentucky. Uh, we learned at PaymentWorks. We did a full RFP, selected the vendor through the RFP process. We got a date to start going live, and we uh, were up against the federal government uniform guidance rules that we would need something in place to check for DeBar vendors. And we had PaymentWorks up and running in three months from the date of our RFP. Oh, nice. Rick, what was your experience for that, too? We went with them in February uh, of 21. Yeah. And we were up and running in May, uh, May 1st. So. Uh, so we made one decision not to do the fruit basket turnover where you, you make all your vendors reapply. We just use new vendors, new contracts, or changes. So over the next couple of years, we'll glide in to everybody has gone through payment works. So Taylor, any recommendations from your perspective from the, the vendor side of things? Any recommendations for institutions as to how to make that implementation process go as smoothly as possible? Well, I, I can actually think of a couple of people on my team who would probably love to jump in and answer that one. I don't oversee the implementations, but I, I think it's helpful to have, I know a couple of things, you know, the it, project management on the our, what we consider customer side, you know, is important. And also kind of wrangling up all those folks like, you know, Naomi mentioned treasury and AP and procurement and finance and all the different departments. It may seem daunting, but it actually... When we, uh, I remember I did a training at a, a school years ago and one of the department users came up and gave us a hug because she was so happy. She's like, you mean I don't have to deal with this information anymore? So it actually helps the departments uh, arguably more than it does Naomi and Rick, but it's just getting all the different pieces and all the different people on board and, and education too, you know, from our side, because we've learned a lot in terms of best practices. We've been in higher ed for a long time. We've learned a lot. Naoma's example, you know, the three months at the time, that was our quickest, our fastest and most efficient implementation. And so we took things that we learned from what we did at Kentucky and we used those as best practices throughout the industry. We, we're not, we're industry agnostic, but we do have quite a few customers in higher ed and, and state and local government and school districts. So we use those experiences to help others. 
So, Taylor, we had talked earlier, and Rick had mentioned it, the indemnification that you have with Chubb. So, is there a limit to that indemnification? Like, what, how high of a, of a loss would that indemnification cover? And then, is it unique to PaymentWorks that you guys have that type of indemnification? Well, I, I don't know if it's unique. Uh, I'm not aware of any other company who offers the level of indemnification we do, but that doesn't mean they don't exist. But what we do is, so we, the indemnification that we offer is just between us and our customers. And uh, we offer up to uh, $2 million per occurrence. Um, so it's, it's significantly more coverage. What we partner with Chubb for uh, is kind of two things. One is they're our insurance company. So our indemnification policy is backstopped by Chubb, right? So if we have some losses that we need to indemnify, you know, we we have a, a backstop on our side. So Chubb is our insurance provider and they've gone through a six month process or whatever it was to kind of go through and look at our process. The other thing that they do, which is really cool, is if, if $2 million is, is not enough, if you use PaymentWorks, they can actually offer supplemental insurance for that. So you can get another, I, I don't want to speak for them, but another million dollars, for example, so you can be covered, you know, even more. And that would be kind of between the customer and Chubb, but it's all solving the same problem and it de-risks them. So. Sure. Sure. So Naomi and Rick, have you talked, or maybe it's your treasury department, have you talked to your bank about these types of payment frauds? And have you got any suggestions from your financial institutions that you can share with our members? In our last audit last year, when they found out we were using PaymentWorks, they actually wrote it up as a best practice. So all the customers that they have in the K-12 arena, they're making a suggestion that you look at a product like PaymentWorks to prevent fraud. And so I've been fielding phone calls from their clients saying, hey, how did you do this? How did you get on board? Was it an easy process? You know, what did you encounter? Those kinds of things. And so it's, it's really worked out well for us. I can add in the beginning, that was one reason why we were looking, beside the uniform guidance rules with the federal government, and with our insurance company working with our bank, uh, they did not want to insure us because of the way we were entering vendors and changing vendors within the system. And that's when we knew we had to do something to protect ourselves. And with that, we did not get an increase in our insurance, which we were expecting. <laughs> so thanks to PaymentWorks, that was a huge help. Well, and I know, you know, we've got 5,700 members across the U.S. E&I Cooperative does. And you know, University of Kentucky is always held in high regard for your processes, for your procedures, for your level of professionalism. And I know this is one area that other schools have said, well, how is University of Kentucky doing it? So, so sorry, I've given your name out a couple times, Naoma, but um, <laughs> because you guys are world class on how you're handling the issue. So kudos to you, Rick. I know in K-12, I know some of the you've presented with at some K-12 conferences on this topic because of what you guys are doing and and because of your background as well and expertise in the K-12 industry. So, so thank you for that. So are there any final thoughts or suggestions that you would have? I'd like to see you take out your crystal ball, Taylor, and tell us what does the future look like for this industry? What do the schools and universities need to be aware of? Well, you know, it's funny. We ask that question to partners and, you know, financial institutions and so forth. And 
I think the overwhelming consensus is, you know, fraud is like crime. It, it's always going to exist, right? You just need to figure out a way to mitigate it and, and keep yourself out of the newspaper, as, as Rick described. So it's gone up. If you look at the last 10 years, it's, it's gone up, but it's kind of plateaued around 80% of folks having an attempt and, you know, some significant portion of those having a loss. You can do a quick Google search and, and find those. And those are just the public institutions like, you know, Spring Branch or Kentucky, where these things end up in the newspaper. A lot of the smaller private companies, it, it doesn't because it doesn't have to. But as far as the crystal ball of where it's going to end up, I know I've seen personally, I've been here about five years now, and I've seen it go from barely talked about to talked about all the time. So the awareness has shot through the roof, which is incredible. The banks are starting to come on board. Other technology companies are starting to come on board. You know, we, we're a preferred um, partner, I think it's called with NACHA, you know, the, who is the governing body for ACH. So everyone's talking about this. And I hope we're part of solving it and then others kind of jump in because it's, it's a big, big problem to solve. I think the, the sophistication of fraudsters is only increasing. They're coming up with better and better ways to infiltrate your systems and to make themselves a part of your system. So technology is growing. Yeah, they're creative little buggers. Where we are, I cannot imagine not having a company to handle this for us. That if it was relying on us to try to catch any change, any vendors, to try to call back vendors, as we know, uh, the workforce uh, is very hard right now to find employees and to you know bring somebody on just to handle this for you. I don't see how your uh, institution could do that. You know, I attended a CFO conference actually here in the Midwest, and one of the things they talked about was the the fraud that's going on, the cyber attacks, and to that small Lincoln College here in Illinois that's closed down or will be closing in a few weeks. It was a, a cyber attack from Iran, so. You know, there, you never know where it's going to come from. You never know the source or uh, or whether or not you're a target. But when you're a target, it, it can be brutal. To If you look at a $1.8 million potential loss, that's, that's life-changing for a school district, a university. And in this case, it was much smaller than that, but it was the final straw and, and closed the university down, the college down. So very sad. So thank you for listening. And thank you to Naoma Emmons from the University of Kentucky to Rick Gay from Spring Branch Independent School District, and then also Taylor Nemeth from PaymentWorks. Some great expertise that you provided, and we certainly appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks, Joe. So thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Cooperatively Speaking. Don't forget to visit our website at www.eni.org forward slash podcast for the resources from this episode and to catch up on any episodes that you may have missed. And be sure to subscribe through your preferred streaming service so you never miss an update. Thanks again, everybody.